0: Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Paisley Cura for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is July 27th, 2019, and this is being recorded in the Midtown Manhattan offices of the New York Public Library. Hello, Paisley. Hi there. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. Uh, how about we start off with you just introducing yourself? Uh, well, my name is Paisley Curra.
1: I, um, I teach at the City University of New York uh, at Brooklyn College. I teach political science and gender and women's studies, um, and I've been there for 25 years. I am um, originally Canadian. I moved down to the States in 1988, so um, and I have American citizenship. I was afraid I would accidentally commit a crime and. Be accidentally deported, so I can vote. So, what else? Um, I, have a, I have a I have a child, a nine year old daughter. I live in Crown Heights.
0: I didn't know your kid was nine. Yeah, it's ten. Oh wow, they grow fast, don't yeah. they? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what how happened? Yeah. 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 So, I guess, um, let's start off with, uh, tell us about your childhood and your growing up. Um, I grew up in um, southern Ontario, in um, just kind of farm
1: country. It would be similar to, like, Ohio, with, without as much manufacturing. Just a lot of corn and feed lots for beef cattle and chickens. And, uh, yeah, like, I grew up in, I can't even say on Facebook where I grew up because it's too small to be on a map so i grew you know grew up outside a hamlet of 200 people and it was such a small place that like when you went trick or treating you weren't you couldn't stop at the new people's house cuz they might poison you and the new people had been there for 17 years so it was it was that kind of place it's like everybody knew each other everybody was related probably a little bit of over inbreeding you know so um yeah so i grew up in the country you know it was pretty goofy. I didn't understand about traffic lights or crossing the street till I was like, you know, 13. So, um, yeah. And then um, when, I, um, when I went away to college, we call it University in Canada, but when I went away to university, uh, I came out as a lesbian in my last year of university. And previous to those three years of, previous to the my fourth year of university, I came out as a lesbian. And the, previous to that, I was like just a homophobic little jerk, basically. I wasn't like actively homophobic. I didn't like campaigning against queer people, but I was just like <laughs> in, internalized homophobic kind of little jerk, you know. So that's, it that gives me a bit, nice broad perspective when I see, you know, homophobic or transphobic students on campus. Um, yeah, and then. Um, and that was so that was in the 80s and then I came down I had a I had a girlfriend who my first girlfriend was going to go to graduate school and like I had it was just a big university it was like a big state school and no one had really mentored me and you know I was doing fine in classes but like I was like what's graduate school like you know <laughs> it just I didn't know anybody who had gone to graduate school or even what it was I didn't It hadn't occurred to me that the professors had done something and she's like, he was kind of shocked. She's like, well, you know, you go and you study, you get your MA and your PhD. And I was like, all right, that sounds good. I'll apply. So, so she, went, so she, um, yeah. So she came down to Cornell University to do her PhD. So I applied the following year, and that's how I landed at Cornell. Of course, as soon as we got there, we broke. I got there, we broke up. But. Um, so that's how I ended up in higher education because I just was following a girlfriend and I had no idea what grad school was like or that, what, that, that it was even a thing. I just did, didn't have that kind of social capital to know like about that. But so, I mean, somehow I got in. And um, yeah, so I spent six years upstate in Ithaca. Um, and I think that's when I first um, I got o- involved in kind of activism and organizing. I think some of the first organizing parts were, um, there was some kind of... Um, there was some group in New York State that predated the Empire State Pride Agenda, but I can't remember what it was called. It was something New York State, it was some kind of gay rights group, but the name escapes me. So we had a little very lame chapter, you know, we didn't really ever do much. And then soon ACT UP kind of swept over things, and that's why I really got, was really became more, you know, y- you know, interesting because it was like more of a crisis than something and nothing well Albany can seem exciting but like the AIDS crisis seemed like okay this is happening so that was you know so we had an act up chapter um, which was all grad students as you can imagine you know we all have these perfect politics but like the town gown stuff was very very defined um, but we did you know we we did stuff around the local jail and you know we at the time we thought we had got the uh, the local jail keeper the sheriff to uh, to distribute condoms in prisons, and then later we probably realized he probably just promised us that and never did it. Like we didn't have enough, we didn't have enough experience as activists to kind of do the follow through. But, but we would come down to New York City for those big ACT UP meetings and go to the center, which was just a kind of a trashy place back then. You know, this big room with all these stupid columns in it, and we were like, oh, these are the real activists. You know, and we we're like, oh my goodness. And one time, Sarah Schulman came to Cornell to speak, and we were all just like. Oh my god, that's Sarah Shulman. You know now I know her. And it's kind of funny, like oh she's just a person you can actually talk to. her. But back then we were like oh my god, and they had these like clothes, like they had boots and Doc Martins, and we were like wow that's like what you do when you're in New York. So it was it was kind of interesting. Like we had um, it, part of it was just kind of like being inculcated into like a, like learning what urban queer culture was because everybody there was sort of like a hick from some other you know even when they were grad students from you know just from some state college somewhere. So. The ACT UP stuff was very like, oh, this is what it is to be queer. So then eventually we started a, a Queer Nation chapter too you know, always just kind of following closely whatever happened in New York City because that was where the real authenticity was. And we wanted to be like the big kids. There was this guy in Ithaca who was in the English PhD program named Ned Brinkley. And he had been at the St. Patrick's Cathedral Action, you know, and he was like our God. He would come in the room and organize us, and we were, you know, and we were just like, oh, that's real life. That's real activism. You know, because in a college town, there's just, there's not, you don't really disrupt anything because they're just, everybody's taken care of, and nothing bad is going to happen to the students, and it's just a performance, you know. So we uh, we really looked up to the the New York folks. And then, of course, when we moved down here, I just realized they're all just regular people who probably didn't know exactly what they were doing either by the time. <laughs> That was that was my first um, introduction to activism. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny, because when I started at Brooklyn College, I tried to find the queer students, and I did. They had a club. They called it, a, I don't know what they called it. It was like the LGBT Alliance or something. Um, and uh, I went in there, and there was like <laughs> these five or six students, and they were all smoking and they kind of stared at me as they stared at any new person who walked into their room, saying, "Who are you?" And I'm like, "I'm the new professor, you know. I'm queer, and I want to meet the students." And they they kind of blew the smoke in my eyes and said, uh, "And what kind of activism do you do?" And I was like, "Oh, I, you know, in Ithaca, I did like ACT UP and coordination." And they were like, "That's so bourgeois!" Like so they were like, they were like super <laughs> radical, and, and they were kind of radical that I wasn't used to, you know. And I'm still friends with some of them, like. Um, you know, like Carolyn Riccardi, I don't even, she was one of them, she, you know. I saw Carolyn this morning. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. she might be tomorrow. I might see her at the, the Trans Day of Action tomorrow or um, Thierry Brett. Like just people I, 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 you know, still in touch with. But I was just, even even the students were cooler than I was when I got to Brooklyn College. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, so that was, um, that's sort, so that my, my history of an activist didn't, That's that's, you know, how i landed in Brooklyn in fact, at Brooklyn College, you know when I was on the job market as a political theorist trying to find a job i was <clears throat> from my dissertation, you could see you could probably guess that I was queer and which in that time was not a helpful thing you know it was just a bad it was no one was gonna and you know a lot of people at Cornell would actually get have decent jobs, but I think my dissertation was just too out there but then at Brooklyn College, one of the people in my department had decided that he was like a kind of a lefty union dude, and he was like, we need a lesbian because the students are upset about something about the blood drive and there's no, there's only one out queer faculty we need to have another one. And so they just hired me. And I thought, when I got the job, I thought, oh, they must have read my dissertation and they saw that article. And they're like, no, like 99% of the people, the jobs wouldn't even look at me because I was a lesbian. And this place wouldn't even look at my file. They just wanted a lesbian. So I guess it kind of, this sort of of justice, it kind of worked out. But uh, that's how I got the job.
0: So... um, yeah, and I've been there ever since. So backing up, uh, yeah. following up on a few yeah. things, uh, tell me about your parents. What kind of work did they do? Were they farmers or what? what my that?
1: dad, um, my dad was, um, he was a he owned a farming supply company. So, I don't know what. So it'd be the kind of place where farmers would take their grain and dump it, and then he would sell them seeds and, um, you know, fertilizer yeah. and concrete. So. Um, yeah, and we also had a farm. So, But it was just very, um, it was like a, a small business. But, um, you know, I didn't, you know, my playground when I was little was like this factory, basically, where they would have all the fertilizer bins with potash and all this stuff, and I would just play in them, which is, now it just seems like that was probably not a good idea. You know, like it probably wasn't the healthiest thing. But that was like the 70s when they didn't. no one really cared, cared about, you know, health or the environment or whatever. So, and my mother... Um, she just, you know, she had worked at home, as they say. She had four kids in, in, in the span of eight years. So she was, you know, she was a city girl who I accidentally married my dad at college, when they met at college. And, uh, you know, ended up in this very small town where she didn't fit in very well. She had four kids. So, um,
0: yeah. And... Uh, what were your parents' dynamic like that you saw or that you were around like? Did you get many messages or thinking about gender from them? Um, I was definitely always kind of a tomboy. Like my
1: first, kindergarten in the first grade, my mother always made me wear like a dress or a skirt and she didn't know any better and she would like get the Sears Robot catalog and she'd, ma- this makes me sound ancient, but anyways, but she'd like sew me these dresses and she didn't even know how to sew, but that's what you're supposed to do, you know? And I, they were just terrible. And then she realized she would just she realized like, oh, all the other kids aren't wearing skirts, so she doesn't have to. So that so that changed, thank God. And then I never wore a skirt again until if unless I really had to. So they they, were, my, they weren't, bad, weren't they were bad with they were kinda of clueless. But as I grew up, you know, like it was queer that I was kinda of queer. And my mother was very um I remember when I was eighteen, she said she was telling me a story about how, you know, she had this really good friend who they who had they were like really close and she actually had died. But um, at one point, you know, she said, you know, I had sex with my friend just to make sure I wasn't a lesbian, which everyone should do. And I was like, Mom, why are you telling me this? I don't even, why, I don't want to hear this from my mother. So she was like, that kind of saying, I think you're a lesbian, you should dry it out. But I didn't want to hear that.
0: So. Um, How old were you? At that I was like 18, year.
1: you know. I had wasn't interested in boys, but I just was kind of like not, I was kind of repressing like um, who I was. I mean, I, you know, so I was attracted to women. That that was certainly true. The first woman I had a real, the first girl I had a crush on was like the most religious fanatic person in the whole county. That was like my luck. Like literally, like it's a small little county in southern Ontario. Literally, this kid went to Oral Roberts University, which no one in Canada does. It's Canada's a free public higher education system. No one goes to the states to pay for like a wackadoo religious private <laughs> education. But she did. Like that's that's my luck in having my first crush. But. Uh, um, yeah, so, um, so I kind of, in terms of like my gender, I think I kind of like I fell in this kind of tomboy category, and I, I, sort of like was attracted to him, but I didn't really think about it too much until I got to
0: college. And you mentioned uh, this prolonged period of internalized homophobia. Yeah. and What was that like? Well, it was just it was it was interesting. Like there was this
1: group at my university, and they were called the Queens Homophile Association. And then I remember like peeking in. They would have a dance, and they I remember in the student center. And I remember peeking in, and like going, "Oh, that's so gross!" But like, why would I be peeking in? Like, what's <laughs> going on there? And then later, after I graduated from college, I worked as a reporter. And this woman who started that organization was also working to change the curriculum. And then she was then she suddenly became the person who was my hero. Like I just only totally switched gears on that one. So like, um, I would think I was just like you know, processing my. My my attraction to women by
0: through homophobia, <laughs> so. And at Cornell, what was the process of getting into activism like? Was it what would, would did you did your were your politics changing quickly? Did yeah
1: yeah I think my politics changed. Um, you know, grad students are always more radical. Um, my but my department, which was government, which is political science, they were, they were all like these lefty boys and lefty women, but they just, the queer thing was just not, they were not used to it. So I was like the only out queer, maybe there's one other, or no, I guess there was four or five of us, but like people were just, they didn't talk about it and you didn't bring your, we always have beer on the quad every Friday night, but you didn't bring your, you know, your girlfriend or your boyfriend if you're queer to that. So it was just like, so, um... So I always hung around with the, the much more queer-friendly humanities people, you know. And all my I took all my courses there. And at, at one point they were reviewing my transcript. In the government department, and they're like, "This person has taken like two thirds of their courses outside of the department." It was, they didn't have any rules, but so I did, you know, because I didn't like hanging around with, you know, you know. Guys with these kind of glasses that studied Harvard, Mass, but you know, you know what I mean, like that kind of the kind the kind of not homophobic, but just kind of what we'd call now like a bit of a bro, you know. Um, so my so my activism really you know there was a little bit of work around this thing called the uh, whatever that New York State Gay Rights Group was called, um, but mostly it just kind of started through through ACT UP.
0: So this was the 80s. Yeah,
1: so that would have been, um, I went to grad school in 88. I think ACT UP Ithaca formed in like 89 or 90 um, when Ned Brinkley um, showed up. And it's always been, in a way, it's been kind of a detriment to my my work as a, 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 a in the processes because when I'm in a meeting and people are talking about Robert's rules of orders, I like I never have learned that. I never, and I feel it's, I feel like asking for a second is just stupid. I feel like you should be asking for a vibes watcher, you know. And I just, have, I'm still stuck in that kind of like, or is it like more horizontalism moment? And I feel like Robert's rules of order is just like this kind of evil, terrible thing, and I never learned it. And you know, even when I'm at a meeting now, I just. I don't even have, I have no idea about it. So, so I mean, it was kind of a nice introduction to activism, because the formalism of many, you know, old, old, more old-fashioned groups can really just make you really bored
0: and tired really quickly. And then ACT UP, yeah, in Ithaca, mm-hmm. um, you guys worked on a jail campaign. Yeah, we worked on a jail, yeah jail campaign because we were like,
1: to our heroes in New York, we're like, what should we do? And they're like, well, we're doing some stuff with the prisons. Why don't you do stuff on your local jail? So we're like, all oh, right, we will. So we did. So we. You know, we got all the evidence and you that know, the we, people were doing a lot of good research down here with, I forget that that research group that came in of ACT UP or preceded ACT UP or whatever. Um, um, and we, um, so, because a lot, you know, there's a jail, people were there for like a, a year. So they're, they're there at least, you know, sometimes they're there for shorter, but they could be there up to a year. So there was definitely, and there was, there was no HIV testing and there was no obviously no condom distribution, so we worked so we worked on that, um, and we also, um, you know, coordinated with New York and went on. You know, we went down to the NIH big protest and whenever that was, in the early '90s, and we would pro- protest in Albany, run the prison stuff. Um, yeah, but our our big thing was um, the, the just the local jail. Yeah.
0: Were there other folks involved in ACT UP in Ithaca or that you came into contact with in New York City that you're interested in sharing about? Um, um, No, I mean, I just, I'm not a very good
1: person who remembers names, but um, I do remember, like, there was a big coming to meetings and seeing, like, Maxine Wolfe, who was, like, you know our idea of like a famous person. You know probably she couldn't get an aisle seat on a plane. She's that unfamous. But you know what I mean, like like oh, cause that they had, they had some act up women had done this book, and we're like we had all copies of this book, and we're like oh that's Maxine wealth and you know, <laughs> so um, I think because um, it was a, it was like act up. I think it was like a lot of it was a pretty good gender distribution. Like th- there wasn't any out oh, trans people in it at the time. Though a lot of people turned out to be trans later. Um, but there was lots of, you know, people who identified as women and people who identified as men. And But we were sort of more of a feminist act up. than so we were like, we liked that, the, um, you know, the Maxi
0: Wolf kind of thing. And, um, yeah. So. And then when did you, uh, tell me about Queer Nation and forming a Queer Nation chapter. Yeah, I think we formed Queer Nation just in a sense of, like, we were trying to, you know,
1: like, Everybody was saying try to disassociate, act up from an identity-based movement. So coordination became a bit. Coordination office is like not supposed to be identity-based, but it's more focused around queerness. And we wanted to kind of suggest that act like you know AIDS activism concerned everybody, and coordination is around like the policing of sexuality only. So so um you know so we did some things like we did um you know we do some kind of. Queers go shopping thing in the local mall, or we do like a, th- we did like a this is what queers look like performance thing in the the downtown you know p- p- plaza area, you know just 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 kind of doing normal things but having big queer nation shirts like in Ithaca no one really cared I mean that was it was not like it's very conservative surrounding Ithaca it's basically the very top end of Appalachia but right in Ithaca it's like a college town so. Um, and we did stuff. We did, I mean, it was like a weird, it was, um, you know, we, uh, there was something going on where, like, um, people felt their phones were being bugged. I mean, maybe they weren't, but there were some weird things happening with people's cars, and the police in Ithaca back then, they used to go to the one gay bar and write down everybody's, um, license plate number and run their numbers, you know, which would have an effect on the local people. So they weren't great, you know, and, um we would get some nasty calls and we call call the police and complain and they'd say well, well maybe you we should move you know so is that but like there's no like it felt there's no real threats but it was just a little low level stuff and and one time this is so embarrassing we thought we were so kind of cool but we you know it was just when there were printers that you know you could just do a laser printing and we like laser printed some stickers i'm sure we stole some like act up barber recruitery sort of art and we like stuck them all over the FBI's parking spot places, like as if that was our big action. Like it was so embarrassingly teeny, but we were like hiding in the bushes and sticking these coordination stickers over the the FBI parked their cars. It's just it's so ludicrous to think of it now. But that was our idea of like standing
0: up to the man. And you mentioned having a lot of uh, having. Uh, I worship in contact with the New York Act Up. Uh, did you have contact with queer nation people outside of Ithaca? Was was? there wasn't...
1: I don't think as much. I mean, there was, um, you know, we all had that. We You know, because we go down to the, the the gay pride parades, like it was a big deal, you know, going down. And then, you know, there was that year they handed out the queers read this I Hate Straights, you know, thing, which I still have a copy of. So I think we kind of uh, picked up... Um, sort of our marching orders from that. And it was beginning to come into the Academy with like, I think it was Lauren Berlant and um, I forget the other guy's name. It'll come to me. Um, You know, kind of wrote about Queer Nation and um, Michael Warner. Lauren Berlant and Michael Warner wrote about Queer Nation. So so we were kind of getting a sense of like, this is not just about like a, a, you know, a safe assimilationist identity politics. This is about like the public representation of sexualities. Um, Though it's interesting, at the time we had this professor who a lot of us really kind of adored. Her name was Biddy Martin. She's now, like, the president of Amherst College. But she was saying, you know, like, just saying you're queer in public, that's not necessarily radical. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> of course it's radical. We're, you know, putting signs saying queer is, blah, radical. She's so are like, well, it probably depends on the context and maybe doing on the Ithaca Commons is, you know... Maybe mean that's a pretty not that radical thing. You know, at the time we were so, you know, you know you take your professors and you like you read you, know, you expect too much of them so like we were super mad at her. And of course, now I think she was super right. You know, but I was so like how dare she critique queer nation, but she she was like super smart and she could like read through all the theory and understand it and kind of get what its politics was and I think she thought some of the first iterations of queer theory were a little um you know, sexist, and, you know, de- you know, the way queer theory kind of positioned gender as boring in its initial stuff. She has this great article about how queer theory is kind of, its coolness and its fluidity is only possible because gender gets stuck as boring, you know, as unchangeable. What's her name again? Okay. Her name is Biddy Martin. She actually goes by that, if you look it up. Um, so there was all this, so anyways, there was this kind of queer stuff happening in the ac- acad- academia, too. And we're going to some, like, talk at um, at Cornell, one of the kind of fancy talks, and the grad students go because you're supposed to go to the talks, but we'd also load our food up with cheese, or our pockets up with cheese at the end, and so on. But I remember seeing, like, Susan Buck-Morris, who is my professor, she's saying, oh, I wish I, wish I could be like you. I think she meant to say butches, but she said like brunches or something. Like you, lesbians and brunches and stuff. you all got the style and things are happening and you're all a big group and so on. Like, and she, she was kind of sweet, like she was trying to say like, oh, you guys, you've got some kind of movement going on, but she couldn't even get the language. But uh, um, so, but I mean, and looking back, it was like it felt like. It was this radical thing, but it was like made. It was it was like radical, supported by the Olin Foundation. You know what I mean? Like it was like the radicalness of grad students who are like on private stipends stipend supported by, you know, you know the the, the fortunes of robber barons. So it was kind of this kind of very safe space to think you had a kind of radical politics. Um, so it wasn't until I came to New York City that I was like, "Oh, I see what you mean by the Ivory Tower." Because going from Cornell to like teaching at CUNY was like a huge shift, you know. Like classrooms were like there's not enough chairs for the people, and you know, you have to buy your own chalk sometimes. <laughs> you know, like it was just a big shift, and I was like, and I was totally hadn't really ever given much thought to a certain kind of more class analysis till I took
0: up my own job teaching primarily working class students. Well, that's very interesting. So uh, it sounds like uh, some of the emergence of academic queer theory happened while you were in graduate school, yeah, and you were yeah. paying attention to it. And yeah. you mentioned your research was queer inflected. Yeah, it wasn't. Time. Yeah, it wasn't like it wasn't like the most radical,
1: but it was basically looking at. Um, I was looking at like how gay people's identity was narrated in court cases. So and that was you know. Basically, as you can imagine, it was like it was usually narrated as, like, we're born this way. So I was kind of like just kind of studying that and you know, kind of pointing out the limitations of those kind of arguments, which is obviously not rocket science now, but back then in the early 90s, it's like it was more in- original. <laughs> so, so that's so then that was informed by by queer theory
0: too. Yeah, yeah, and um, that what you just said that's really interesting. The, um coming to CUNY and not having a class analysis and yeah. that not being a part of the queer movements, right? Scene you were in, and then actually confronting this big class difference and trying to think through that. What was that like? Well, it just takes to place over a, pro- a, a process
1: of years, um, mm-hmm. and I had a kind of like I had a kind of stoppage around unions because as soon as I got here, and I had a partner when I moved down here, and um, at the time there was, uh, they, and they did have. Same sex health benefits, but my my union guy, um, who was in my department, and he was like high up in the union. He's like, "Oh yeah, when they gave those domestic partnership benefits, we filed an unfair labor practices, you know, grievance because they had been on our list of asks and they just gave them. So we didn't we didn't want them, but they gave them to us. So I just like, can we swear on this? I don't know. I was like, you jerk, like, and so I don't know. Like they were. I was just like, why would you not allow your employees to do that? So. um to have those kind of benefits so but um like it was during bargaining
0: or yeah like they basically said
1: we didn't that that was low that wasn't that wasn't a real ask it was a fake ask you know Uh but we got it we didn't want it so it was just you know so it made me kind of hate them um but um you know i chilled out about the unit over the years but um yeah no it was it was i didn't queer theory didn't give me any kind of class analysis and you know to be honest i think it's had a lot of it has a lot it pays a lot of lip service to class and I think a lot of work that is done down in queer studies is good on class but I think queer theory itself is just kind of inescapably like not good on class um, you know there's people who use queer theory and are good on class but queer theory itself it's just you know it's a kind of a reaction against a lesbian gay solidified identity you know which is fine but it's not a, it's not a reaction against liberalism per se you know. It's a reaction against like assimilationism. And it says like, oh yeah, we should, you know, not try to get married, we should, you know, have more radical politics. But I don't know, I've always felt like even with someone like Lisa Dugan's work, whose work is I admire, it, I think it's good, but it comes out of a reaction against assimilationist tendencies, not a a desire to like live in a more equitably distributed you know, a world where things are distributed more equally. So Um, But, you know, I think other people can make, you know, find more positive aspects of class stuff in queer theory than I can, but I think I, I to be honest, one, I kind of had a reaction against it because when I was working with the Center for Lesbian Gay Studies, you know, um, and on the board, it was a real mix of people from private and public institutions, and it just seemed very odd to me that the people from the private institutions who made twice as much as we did in their free housing and benefits and stuff. their critique of like a certain kind of identitarian politics, it just it, it just seemed to me kind of problematic because they're, because um, the stuff that they were critiquing people wanting, they already had, like health insurance or housing or tenure, you know? So I always felt like there's a certain, or like vacations in Hawaii or shopping at Barney's, like it was just a certain kind like, for me, like I'm a very kind of literal person, so like I'm not very <laughs> theoretically fancy, but I was like, there are these people with these beautiful vacations and clothes and if they had Instagram they would have been lovely. And like I, I just couldn't I just couldn't understand like, you know, the class aspect of it. And of course now that I know more, you know, about theories of Marxism, like of course that's a long tradition of Marxist theory of like rich people were going on writing about class. But I think I I had a reaction against um, you know, some of the stuff around identity politics. Because at that point I was coming into identity politics under the kind of under the transgender you know, rubric, and not so much that, like, an assimilationist thing, but just, like, we need to have identification documents, and if you want to call that assimilationist, okay, but people need them to, like, get a driver's license, they need a driver's license to, you know, you know, get on a plane or apply for a credit card, like, so I just felt that the, um, the, at that point, the queer stuff was sort of, it just felt a little false to me.
0: What year did you start at Brooklyn College? In 1994. And when did you start thinking about or connecting the trans stuff? Well, I think I started connecting the trans stuff, um, you know, a little bit at Cornell.
1: And the, there was this movie that the, Cornell had this kind of cinema with the Cornell is full of people who are, are there because of their partners who are overly educated. So they had this; they had somebody programming all their films. It was like should have been in a much fancier place. But he brought in films that we didn't deserve, probably were way too fancy for us. But he brought in some film, I think it was by Max Wolf there or something, but some old, some trans film would be ancient now. And we're like, we all went to see it. We're like, oh my God, you know, I, I can't remember what it's called, like that man in the title. But, um, uh, you know, and that kind of opened up It's um, like, oh, I mean, that's like the first time I'd ever thought about transgender, in relation to myself, because I'd always just seen these representations of trans women on talk shows, I hadn't really ever given it much thought, you know. But when it, when it became something that I could identify with, and I started to give it more thought. Um, but I, so yeah, so I guess like I came down here, and then like the late, you know, the mid to late '90s, I started going to conferences. Like there was this trans conference called True Spirit. It was in like the DC area every year, or other conferences. Into a couple of True Spirits. Yeah, yeah, cool, yeah. So that was, um, that was you know, that's kind of how I started to kind of recognize, like, oh, this is like something that could describe my, how I feel about my, you know, how I feel and who I am, like, um, it was good, and it was uh, very, I found true spirit, I mean, it might have had some problems, but I found it to be very kind of ecumenical on, like, gender stuff, you know, like, it was, uh, you know, yeah, you could be a feminine man, it was like, because I was like, I never could be, like, a really good butch, because I just didn't have the wherewithal, I didn't, couldn't fix things, I wasn't strong, I didn't go to the gym, and the idea that you could have a male gender identity and still just be a bit of a sissy was like, oh, okay, that, that kind of clicked for me, you know. Um, I do remember getting on some email lists back when they were, like, terrible, you know, I don't even know how they worked. And I think if, I don't know what it was called, but it was a terrible list of trans men who were super misogynistic and crazy. Like some guy was like, oh, I feel bad because I have my period. And everybody was like, oh, what a wuss you are. What are that? do well, you think that tampon string is going to stand in for your dick, you little faggot? I mean, they were just like super like misogynist. like. And I think there was this, and someone explained to me, and I don't know if it's true, that there was like an East Coast, West Coast divide. Where the West Coast was much more like rigid around gender stuff, the FDMs at the time in the 90s. And the East Coast was more like, yeah, just be yourself, la, la, la. But anyway, so, so sometimes I would get, I'd be on a couple of those lists, and I would get scared off and go, oh, those guys are mean. Mean boys. I don't want to hang out with that group. But then, I found people who were much more chill
0: about around gender, and I was like, okay, this is not so bad. And was this the same period that you were engaged in your own transition or talking to people about? Yeah, it was being the same trans. time. It was yeah. yeah, I was.
1: I didn't like come out. Um, I didn't like actually transition until two thousand, like publicly into two thousand and three. But I was like thinking about it for a long time and working on it. And it's funny. I didn't get tenure until two thousand and one. So I definitely wasn't gonna do anything before then. It might it might have been okay, but it might not have been back then. So um but I definitely was thinking about it a lot and talking about it a lot. And, yeah. And I was doing a lot more transactivism and things
0: like that. Yeah. So you were around this emerging trans scene in the late 90s yeah, and early 2000s. Yeah. What was it like politically? Like what were people working on and what was people's political analysis? And
1: Yeah, so it was basically, it was, um, it was very, you know, it, it, it looks very kind of like liberal reformist. Though I still think it's like identity documents, okay, maybe they're liberal reformist, but you gotta function. Like, I always remember, um, this uh, book by Patricia Williams, um, where she she's uh, you know does critical race theory, uh, talking about hanging out with the Marxist guys. I forget what they're called, le- critical legal studies people. And she was in Berkeley for the summer, and and in her, she talks about in her book and how like the Marxist guys are like, critiquing like any kind of like liberal thing and critiquing contracts and everything. And uh, in, and she was having this conversation as a black woman with this white guy saying. He was like, "Oh yeah, what what's, why do you care about contracts or why you're, you're so you're so liberal?" And she was like, "You know, to just get a sublease on my apartment, I had to FedEx like every tax document for the last two years and like letters of recommendation and like, as a black person, like." you know, look, I want that contracted, but, you know, and you could just shake your, ha- as a white guy, you could just shake a hand and get a, you know, get a nice apartment. So I kind of think about that from people who cr- criticize trans people trying to get identity documents that match their, their gender identity. It's like, well, you have one. So, like, let's throw your driver's license in the garbage then. So, um, so I think it was kind of based on a kind of, you know, just, w- like, what the most primary needs were, like identity documents. Um, and then also non-discrimination laws, <coughs> and I don't, I don't think now that non-discrimination laws are the be-all and end-all, but I do think, like, I still think even symbolically they can be meaningful, but, I mean, I think, you know, trans groups now, you know, have largely, you no, know, they are not putting all their eggs in that basket anymore, which is a good thing. Um, yeah, so back in the late 90s, a bunch of us um, started this group called the Transgender Law and Policy Institute, which, um... It was um, <coughs> it was just meant to um, just to kind of be a just to kind of be a a, a place uh, an organization that could make certain kinds of arguments because some of the other people Shannon Minter worked at the National Center for Lesbian Rights and Jennifer Levi worked for a gay rights organization in um, Boston <coughs> excuse me um, and James Green was there and Kyler Brotus Spencer Berkstadt, um people like that, um, so we could kind of have this be a, uni- uh, Like this could be our voice, so it's like, put up policy documents, it was really just a page. it was like, you know, with no budget, and like, you know, a few people, and it was all people who were trans men, and, uh, you know, I would never do anything like that now, but the idea back then was like, all these organizations, these other organizations were run and led by trans women, and there were no trans men involved, so it wasn't like, exclusionary, it was like, it's okay to have an organization with with just trans men. I wouldn't do that now, but it was sort of a reaction against how the organizing was. Was this in New York City, this group? Or was it It know, a... was, It was national, because people national, from like yeah. West Coast, uh, Boston, yeah, different parts of the country. Who, who was involved? So Shannon Minter, he was on the West Coast then. Um, Spencer Bergstadt, somewhere in the West Coast. Jennifer Levi, in Boston area. Kyler Brodus, Missouri. Um, uh, Spencer, that's probably about it. And Jameson Green, who I think was in California at that time. And then later, Jenny um, Beeman joined us. And, and, um, and they were, you know, in Massachusetts or something like that. So it was like our first non-trans men person. So, it, and it just, um, it was just a webpage, but we would do policy documents. So I started, I would do work with the civil law project around the birth certificates. or And that would be like an organization that would, you know, submit, you know, be, they exist on paper. So, and we did it, you know, the webpage, you know, I kept it up, it was a lot of work. And it's still up there, it's, I wish someone could take it down, but we've lost control of the, no one knows who in the domain thing anymore, so it just sits there, I don't know why it's still up. But, uh, but you know, we kept track of all the non-discrimination laws and policies around jails and parenting and colleges, and it was just like a clearinghouse of information.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, did you know many trans academics? Um, In the late 90s or early
1: 2000s? No. No. I'm trying to think who was it. I mean, Susan Stryker, I met in the 1990s at some Clags conference, and she was like, at a PhD, but she didn't have an academic job. She was running the LGBT archives in San Francisco at that time, I think. Um, I'm trying to think of any trans academics. I don't think I, I mean, there must have been some, but I didn't know of any, you know. There were just very few people.
0: Did you get involved in New York City-based organizing?
1: Yeah, so uh, like I think the Transgender Law and Policy Institute was started around 1998 or 1999, and around the same time, Pauline Park and I and some other people formed this other group called the New York Association for Gender Rights Advocacy, uh, Niagara, and that was basically to work on the city and the state policies. So, um, yeah, and that was um, that was sort of the main group um, working on city and state policies. Though so we had a lot of support from, um, like Housing Works was really very involved in advocacy level under, I think the guy's name was Charles King. Um, and you know, various city councilors and so on. But it was, Niagara was like the main the main group.
0: Do you remember who was involved in Niagara?
1: Yeah. Um, it was Pauline Park and myself, David Valentine, who now teaches at the University of Minnesota, Carrie Davis, who at the time I think was working at the Gender Identity Center, um, uh, Sophia Pazos, and then um, Joanne Prince Valley joined us, Melissa Sklarz, Roz Blumenthal was initially a member. There's people like you know there were like seven or eight people. Um, uh, and it was um, it wasn't as easy as the Transnational Policy Institute because the thing is about about politics is like doing politics with your friends is super easy and it's not but it's not challenging it's it's not gonna totally expand the envelope of the world <laughs> but it was like there's just a hundred percent trust and with Niagara it was a very different kind of situation because there's just it was more there was less trust but there was still email so emails could be forwarded you know. <laughs> Um, it was a good group of people but there was like it it was more easily disruptable I think. And some people um you know I think in terms of organizing there's just people you're going to meet and who, who who you work with who have experienced trauma, you know, and it's and they organize they have different issues and they, they they lack trust understandably. Um because of the because of the trauma. So I just think that
0: you know there was it was much more there were some difficult moments for sure. Do you remember anything about the process of founding Niagara and the initial? You know, I I remember, um, I don't remember too much. I think we, um,
1: I think I was, we met at like this guy, David Valentine's place. Um, And we were, it was sort of a kind of, in the terms of today, a horizontal organization. It was just like, I think we called ourselves like a working group or something like that. Um, initially, and we wanted to work on, like, getting New York State to pass a bill that included sexual orientation and gender identity, and that um, and that was uh, our main goal, and then so we had to work with the gay rights groups on that.
0: What year was it formed?
1: Uh, I think it was, like, I can't remember, 1998 or 1999. We started talking about it in 98, but I was trying to find all my
0: old email records, but I couldn't find them back to 2006, so yeah do you um, remember some of how that campaign unfolded? Well, I do remember we went to the Empire State Pride agenda, and we
1: were you know ever so politely you know told to like well, you know what you know what activists like you do, you start local show these legislators like being kind of lectured to like show these legislators like that towns in their area will pass a transgender rights bill and then they'll be more likely to support you know. A transgender rights bill, the state in the state, uh, state level, which is sort of annoying because a lot of jurisdictions in the state didn't have sexual orientation rights bill, but their cities didn't have those, but they were still asking, and they weren't asking, they were trying to get the state to pass a sexual orientation bill. So, um, but we were basically ever so politely kind of shooed away, you know, and I think it was like, you know, people were just weren't in, in into transgender issues. They just thought it would like, you know, there was this old phrase that it would kill the bill. I mean that happened at the HRC. I remember with meeting with the HRC board of directors in the late '90s or early 2000s around transgender stuff, and they were just, you know, really against it. You know, Elizabeth Birch who ran HRC, you know, literally said over my dead body will we include gender identity, and she's a good person, and she came around 180 degrees, but like initially, that's where a lot of these kind of cis gay people were. Like they didn't want to be associated with this ragtag group. Like I think I remember Elizabeth Birch. Told, um, kind of basically said something like, well, what does gay, what does transgender stuff have got to do anything to do with gay stuff? It's like, why? It's like, why? It's like a totally separate issue. Why are we even taking on? And we were trying to say, well, there's, you know, from our, you know, some some of us academics. Well, there's always been sexuality and gender always intertwined. And she just kind of saw in his constituencies and she saw, like, there are gay people, nice gay people with nice well cut suits. And then there are you, you people, you ragtag, you know, bunch of people who, you know, don't, don't, I don't even know how to wear clothes right. Whatever gender you are, you know. So it was like a little bit kind of class stuff going on too. It sounds like class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so that we got that response at the national level. We got that response at the Empire State Pride Gender Letter level. I mean, eventually Empire State Pride Gender they went so far as to like pretend to act, to pretend to try to get gender identity included, but then they would say. Well, we asked, but they said they wouldn't. And I think what actually happened is, the, like, the legislators said they wouldn't. I think Ross Levi and the Empire State Pride people were saying, yeah, you don't want to include this, do you? <laughs> we don't. You know what I mean? Like, so they basically sold us down the river, and it was like, I I think it was a, a really embarrassing moment for the for the head leaders of ESPA, because it's, you know, it was just a bit too late for them to be selling trans people down the river. Like, you know, they should have known better by that time, you know? I mean, these people, you know, you know what happens when, the head of a gay rights organization, you know, um, loses their job or it closes down, is they just go work for a foundation. They're, they always land very nice jobs, um, but they just kind of you know they closed they closed USP down a few years ago because they thought their work was done because gay people had the right to marry. Um, before gender passed. Yeah, well before gender passed. Well, they tried to say that a Cuomo executive order was just the same as as gender. And the, the executive order covers state employees and people who contract with the state. But it's symbolically, it doesn't have as much power. Legally, it doesn't have as much power. And it's just nothing. But they somehow, they actually got, they went so far as to get the people who run this project. I forget what it's called, but it's called the Movement Advancement Project. And they have all these great maps. And they got them to color in New York as if it had a gender inclusive gender identity law. And I emailed the guy who I knew. is like, Logan. Newt Gingrich doesn't have such such, such as He's like oh they said they did and you got that executive order so it's just as good as like no it's not as good you need to wipe that out um, until we just passed last year but um, yeah that was a real that was a real disappointment yeah
0: yeah so trying to get included in Sonda yeah and being politely shut away things mm-hmm. did blow up at one point around Sonda much more visibly yeah I mean
1: I think. As I recall, my memory is not, is not as good as other people's on this, but as I recall, like, we just realized we were being sold down the river, and, like, you know, we started talking to whatever gay press there was, which still mattered back then, you know. I mean, I guess, I don't even know there's a gay... There's no gay newspaper in print anymore in New York City, is there?
0: I, I think the gay city news oh, might it? still
1: print. Yeah. I, I'm
0: not sure. But, I, it,
1: but back then, it kind of mattered. Like, that yeah. was, you know... So when, like, they... Like t- t- Tom Duane wasn't very good on the Hate Crimes Bill, or, or uh, you know, um, the people from Empire State Pride Agenda, we could we had a bit more of an outlet to go and complain, and so they would be more embarrassed. But it didn't change the fundamental dynamics of it, because they wanted they wanted the, the non discrimination, and they got it in like I don't know when that was, two thousand and three or something. And then eight years later, they got they got same sex marriage, and that's. Um, you know, that's that's basically just, that, that was the end of that, so.
0: Do you remember about your own experience of being a part of that organizing? I hear that there's, there was conflict and trauma and some difficulty. What was it like for you? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a conflict diverse person, so I don't, I don't like conflict. Um,
1: but there was, I do remember, like, with a couple of people who were, Working with Negro, they were really mad at us, and mad at everybody, and then there was one person um, who was sort of associated, I don't know, with some of them. I don't know who was more based in Baltimore. Who like said I was a CIA spy. You know, like a lot of. I was like, I was thinking if I was gonna be a spy, would not I be an FBI spy, but whatever. Like, but she was like, there was just a lot of paranoia, you know, about like who people were and what their intentions are. I was like, why would a CIA spy work on like passing a transgender? Like, and if anybody's trying to disrupt the organization in a kind of cartel pro way, it's it's not me. <laughs> it's you know it's somebody else. But there was just kind of distrust and a little craziness and like you know I don't I don't really like that. Um, on the other hand, the the two the the one person who was very disruptive and and her partner, they also like had they had a house where like they housed homeless trans women and they did this incredible stuff for the community and they took care of people and they spent their own money and they, they did whatever they had to keep trans women alive. So I, rec- you know, like, so that was like such important work that they were doing and they didn't get any help or they didn't get any credit. You know, they didn't get any like, oh, you're, you are did not get any awards. They just had this thing called Transy House in Brooklyn. I think Civil the stayed there sometimes. Like, they just took care of people, you know? So I think like, looking back, I can see like, there was this kind of like, even though Niagara had a working group i guess later had a board of directors but it was just more of a kind of like we are going to change the law you know we're going to talk to the legislators and make things right versus these people who have been living on the streets and then taking care of people off the streets and dealing with all that and like it was just turned out to be oil and water you know looking back you know wish we could have you know got some money for house or like done more stuff to kind of like even that out because they in a larger scheme of things, they might have done more better in the world than we did, you know, in terms of
0: providing shelter and food to people. But, That's a really interesting framing of it. I've heard stories from both sides of that divide, yeah. but that way of thinking about the tension.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I mean, I mean, I think I'm vaguely in touch with one of those people just because of social media, but I'm just kind of still scared of the, the other one. Just I'm a kind of scared person, but... Um, yeah, so it's too bad. I mean, but Niagara, there's no way in which Niagara was any kind of grassroots organizing thing. You know, we had people, you know, we had hardly anybody from upstate. I think Lise Maurer was involved um, from Ithaca, but it was hard, maybe River Riverstone, but there wasn't very many people upstate. It was it was no grassroots stuff. It was just like, here's something we can fix in the, 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 the law and let's, you know, find some experts and find a fix and that will just solve everything. You know, and of course, the thing that will affect trans people the most is, like, alleviating poverty and homelessness, you know, <laughs> like... Um, but Niagara did not have that kind of, like, structural, you know, approach, so... I mean, I don't think it was bad what it did, but it was certainly not gonna do... do uh, ch- change the larger, you know, shape of people's lives. I mean, mm-hmm. non-discrimination laws, like... It, it just seems so unimportant compared to, like, homelessness. But they're... I mean, they're obviously related, I understand, but... Um, and poverty, and incarceration, and and all that. Um, but I do think it's interesting, I mean, the National Center for Transgender Equality, like they have a kind of way of narrating. Uh, they, they talk a lot more about incarceration than they used to, and that's good. But they have this way of narrating, like, how everything everything good will happen as a result of passing a non discrimination law, like if you pass a non discrimination law then trans people will be able to get jobs and keep their jobs and will not end up on the street and therefore be you know having to have to do kind of survivor based activity and be arrested by the police and end up in jail and it's like that's a narrative, and there might be a little bit of truth to that, but it's just like it's just like the perfect neoliberal narrative. It's like, if you let everybody work and be a productive citizen, then we won't have people in jail. It doesn't it doesn't look at poverty. It doesn't look at the structural nature of it. It doesn't look at the fact that the the carceral system is a for profit enterprise that a lot of people have, you know, make money off of. So, um, you know. Looking back, it's it's a very kind of limited approach, and I wish we would. I wish we could just. And I think activists are, you know, the more radical activists, obviously, but even places like NCT now are getting better at, at talking about poverty per se rather than like, oh, if they have a job, then they won't be poor, <laughs> you know. So yeah. When did Niagara fall apart? Um, I don't exactly know when. I I think I kind of stepped to after the after the passing the city bill. I mean, I kept going on to those meetings with about the hate crimes bill and gender, but I, um, uh, I just think I think I, I can't remember when I stepped away, but I st- I kind of couldn't handle all the, the drama on the board and all these emails and slights. and so I'm not so I don't I think Pauline kept going for a while. Yeah. So I'm not sure when that when it eventually folded. When did
0: you step away? I don't know, maybe like two thousand four or five, around mm-hmm. then maybe. Was yeah. there a n- different landscape of trans organizing happen in New York that you had contact with or got involved in?
1: No, I think I was. Um, I think I just felt like Pauline had like she had a lot of time to devote to it, and she she could do that work. And I had a day job, and I had to kind of start. You know, eventually I had to. You know, teach it. Like there was the, there's like things I like. There's things I missed. Like I missed the day that. The, the city bill passed because I had a class that day <laughs> I didn't think to cancel it but uh, I think I kind of decided to do more kind of national organizing because that was it seemed kind of sexier and, I, and it and it, it didn't seem to be quite so fraught with all these personality conflicts so that's sort of why I stepped away and then I started doing um, um, yeah I guess I was just more interested in like federal policy
0: and and uh, and not the New York State stuff yeah what was the happening on the federal?
1: Well, kind of the same stuff. It's like, would the human rights campaign allow gender identity to be put into a federal non-discrimination bill? Two thousand four was when that yeah, all blew that up. Was, right? Yeah, there was a big kind of demo and stuff. Yeah. yeah, that blew up. I mean, tell us about that. Well, you know, I think we all a bunch of people went to D.C. and we had it was all planned and we made some presentation to. I don't know if it was the st- high top staff or the board, you know. Um, and everybody's super polite and you know um, but we couldn't quite extract a perfect promise that they would never they would absolutely not not support a bill um that would that didn't include gender identity so that was disappointing i mean the thing with hrc is like is sort of they they're the only game in town in some sense because they have so much money but they've actually have zero legislative accomplishments they've never done anything You know, so why why we have paid attention to them, I don't know, you know, but the head of HRC recently, who he recently stepped down, named Chad Griffith, he he had a biography commissioned about him and his role in the movement for same-sex marriage that literally described himself, described him as the Rosa Parks of same-sex marriage. Like it's just like insane, like they never have accomplished anything and yet they're, they suck all the money away from the states and local grassroots group. Um, they spent it in Washington. they got they get no bills passed. They might have saved some HIV funding, I don't know, but um, they've never accomplished a thing and they get they get all the attention. It's very uh, it's kind of very shocking. But I think one of the problems at that level is, like, everybody thinks of all these biographies of the famous people in the um, the, the, the civil rights movement. And like, oh, the game movement is just going to be like that, and I want to be the famous person. So everybody's kind of, like, writing memos for posterity instead of just kind of, like, trying to get work done. They're trying to, like, oh, I want to be the Thurgood Marshall, or I want to be the Ruth Bader Ginsburg of this, you know, writing... Right, You know, try to establish their place in history before they kind of actually accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. So it's very ego. Because you have the people who went to elite schools, elite law schools, elite clerkships. And then they're running these organizations. And, you know, they're not do-gooders, <laughs> really. They're not. So.
0: Yeah. Uh, and where was your research at during this time? You came out as trans uh, academically? <laughs> yeah, and... I came
1: out as trans in 2003, and that was fine. And then I was, at that moment, I was not teaching so much because I was r- running the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies. So it was like I I teach a course a semester. I go there, teach one one course at night, and I don't know what the students t- thought about me, like who I was. Like I'm not one of those teachers that kind of like I don't like talk to them about myself. I just you know I'm not touchy feelings. So I, I don't know who knows what they thought about me transitioning. Well, I did I I did see some there were some nasty things they wrote. Some people wrote on on the student evaluations, but. Um, but I basically survived that period by just doing like doing programming and raising money for the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies and you know doing a lot of trans trans programming like we had a huge conference in 2005 transgender conference with uh you know a lot of activists and it was you know uh, it was pretty cool. we did a long policy round table. Like, you know, there so you know, was a lot of trans stuff happening at Clags, and I'm sure there was some grumbling in the background, but they hadn't done any forever, so it was a little time of recompense.
0: So. so, trans studies was really starting to emerge in some sort of way, or? Well,
1: there's there's always been a group of people doing trans, what we now call trans studies. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, it sort of coalesced around Susan Stryker because you know she wrote this essay back in 1994 called my words to victor frankenstein and that's kind of like this kind of founding moment in trans studies and then in this is this is all kind of very in the weeds academic detail but and then in 1988 1998 she did a special issue of gsq on trans studies that was really big deal and then um she, she and i and another person edited a a special issue of a women's studies journal on, on trans studies. There's all these special issues of journals on trans studies, like, oh, this is something. But, um, and there's a lot of interest in it, a lot of people writing about it and reading about it and dissertations being written about it. Um, but it just, it didn't really have a place in the academy yet. So, I mean, there's this one called journal called the International Journal of Transgender Studies, but it's very social sciencey and it's very, or science it's very doctorish and medical, and it, that has its place, because it could be used, you know, yeah, in research. But, um, um, so I think, you know, Trans Studies basically is, you know, Susan Stryker was kind of single-handedly kind of just brought that into being. You know, we, we started this journal called TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly. I mean, we were shopping a proposal around since 2010, and it took a while to get it in, some interest. And in 2014, you know, it first came out. So that was like a big deal. And at the same time, she got... She parlayed a job offer from some other institution into like, I'll stay at the University of Arizona if you give me four lines to hire trans people, trans did four trans studies lines so, so it started to kind of really, you know, take off well take off in a relative sense it's not like it's business school but, um, um, you know there was there were some jobs and I when I look at the job market now there's a lot I see lots of jobs <coughs> excuse me advertise they want people to you know be able to do teach about transgender issues. So it's really changed a lot in the last ten years, and I'm I'm glad to have been a part of
0: that. That's, I have to say, it's Susan Stryker is like the the main force behind it. What would you say your place in that formation and development has been? Um, well, I'm a kind of like I, I'm kind of a person who
1: like likes to get things done, and like you know you know so I'm more of a uh, you know I could do logistics and figure things out and. Make sure like the acceptance rate is good for the journal and make sure the word counts right. And, you know, then I have my own special, you know, issues that I would put together on topics that interest me. (coughs) But I think it's mine. It's just kind of like a bit of a workhorse. And I think a a little bit, you know, my therapist says I'm always putting myself down. I have to stop. But... I think, I mean, a little bit, I was a bit of a balance to Susan because she's like humanities. And I, you know, I'm trained in political theory, but I'm also kind of interested in policy. So I'm a little more social science-y as a bit bit of a balance. Um, So it wasn't just all kind of like super fun, but wacky, you know, humanities stuff.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's a big trans-legal thinking world of uh, and then that d- includes a lot of policy but mostly yeah. done by lawyers. And then a big trans studies rooted in the humanities yeah. that reflects a lot of the concerns and debates of the humanities. Yeah. But yeah. not a lot of trans social science yeah. that, it, that is like actually trying to think in trans categories. Yeah,
1: or... I think you're exactly right. I think that's sort of changed because on, on dissertation committees I'm on you know, from mm-hmm. different places, like I can see that starting to change. Like people are using, like trans studies to think through concretely, like you know, issues. Because like the way I like to do, I was trying to do political theory, but I don't want to just talk about John Rawls. What could be more boring? I think it's just like I like to take a problem and just, you know, think about it in a theoretical way. Um, you know, so like when I would do stuff on sex classification, I'm like. Why are there so many different policies? And then that leads me to kind of think about, like, oh, sex is doing different things for different state projects. And so I think in a way, like, there's other work that's being done on that kind of vein that, like, uses these kind of categories, but actually looks at something real, you know. I mean, I'll just say, because hopefully no one will listen to this, but, like, I always find that true about queer theory or... Feminist theory or now trans studies is like there's some really good theory, and it's in a novel about a goddamn, no- there's in an essay about a goddamn novel. It's like, who cares about the novel? Just give me the theory. Like, that's what I want. But, like, it's like all these really smart people are writing about novels. And it goes back in grad school, I had this theory like the Olin Foundation knows what it's doing, and the Mellons know what they're doing. They take the most brilliant people and they stick them in English departments. Because they're going to do least damage to the corporate structure of the world there, because they're going to focus on the novel and not on like you know the Securities and Exchange Commission or something. So, but it just so I so I think with the, with this new kind of group of people doing transgender studies, I think they're kind of you know combining the theory and the social the social science and empirical studies in a in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. So you've seen a growth of that in yeah. the last few years. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 So, and I hope it continues. It's hard because the job, you know, it's the best thing to do is to have a job, to have do that from a tenure track job, and there's just fewer and fewer jobs, and more and more adjuncts and the adjunctification of higher
0: education. So that's not a good time for trend studies trying to spread its wings. Yeah. So what was happening in your personal life outside of your organizing and so work, and... Academic work, like two thousands, two early two thousand tens.
1: Yeah. So my academic, Yeah. So I, you know, I wrote. Um, I was writing law review articles on transgender mm-hmm. stuff, which is, um, you know, like Shannon Minter and I had done this transgender policy guide about how to pat, like what a transgender, like what transgender le- legislation can look like. So I try to turn my activism and then I try to s- tweak it a little bit and sh- throw it in a law review article, so it could sort of count for her scholarship. Um, you know, which I got away with. I wouldn't get away with in a fancier institution. Like, law reviews are not really looked, they're sort of looked down upon because they're not really peer-reviewed. But the, people in law schools can do them, and I got away with it, I think, because at CUNY they just weren't paying attention. Um, but Then, you know, I, I worked, I added, we edited this book called Transgender Rights. I had a bunch of essays that um, came out in 2006, and that was like, that was a real milestone. I mean, you know, there were, some, there were some good pieces in there, but I think co- collectively as a whole, just like the existence of a, like a book like that made a difference. Um, uh, yeah, but in, in the last few years, I started to kind of like not do as much, hardly do any activism, because there's so many activists, and they're actually paid to, to act, do this job. So, you know, they don't need volunteers like me, like showing up. <clears throat> I just go like, now I just go to big demonstrations about immigration or something to be counted, but yeah, I don't need to do like how to write your legislator, you know, kind of things. So what I'm more interested in now is like at this stage of my career is like stepping back and like not being an activist like so that in my work I kind of look at like I take the luxury of looking at all these like totally messed up you know constructions of sex in the law and policy and instead of like just getting totally furious and mad like I used to I just say okay let me just let me just see this as like interesting as like an interesting problem to untangle like how do we end up with this what does it mean about the state what does it mean about the market what does it mean about people so I feel like now I have the luxury of like not not just being angry and just actually you know, being a researcher and a scholar and just be able to try to figure out something over a long historical trend. Um, but before I was just, um you know, it's like, Oh, this is terrible, we have to fix this, you know, we have to get past these non discrimination laws and now I'm just more like, Well why why does like the homeless shelter, you know, house why do homeless shelters house trans women and, with women and why don't jails and you know why can you change your birth certificate here but not there? Like I'm just trying to figure out these things to kind of have a a better understanding of um, of like what governments are up to. Because I feel like with trans activists now and kids in college, they can deconstruct gender like up and down. They can it's totally denaturalized. But they don't. They haven't read Marx, they can't denaturalize the state. They still, no matter how radical they are around gender, they still kind of, in the back of their mind, think of the state as like, it's supposed to be this benevolent night watchman. Like they're still like, they don't get what it's really supposed to do. And similarly with the market, like they don't, they might talk a bit of the market a little bit or corporate stuff is bad, but they don't really get how we've all been kind of individualized in terms of these kind of like homo-economicus, self-branded kind of people, so um, so I'm just trying to kind of like raise those issues more because yeah we've all deconstructed gender that's fine we're really good at it but let's also figure out a larger politics because I think like some people kind of confuse like a radical gender politics with a radical politics and and they're not the same they could they could be continuous or they could be adjacent but it's not exactly the same so when I give talks I have like even the category of transgender it does a lot of covering up of differences as i'm sure you know you know so you have a kid from middlebury talking about transgender people and the risk of incarceration and violence and i'm like you have zero risk of incarceration really unless you do an insider trade and you get stuck and you get caught in goldman Sachs. like you're not going to be in jail like when you say we transgender people it's just like there's a certain kind of violence and kind of like not in- acknowledging like how like really the vulnerability structure around like class and race Matter the, like that that w- that's what harms transgender people. I mean, not to say, you know, I was talking with this with a former student who's really smart. And she says, "You just never discount someone's psychic pain. It's real. They feel damaged and wounded." So I I don't do that. I I, sh- I should not do that. But at a larger scale, like, it's just like we are not all screwed up. Like you know, I'm a ten year prof- I mean, I'm a ten year professor. I mean, probably if I killed someone, I could lose my job. But it's not sure. I
0: might keep it. I mean. And you waited for tenure before <laughs> you came out. I know, it's so, true. So, like, the yeah. risk of employment discrimination even in your very class-privileged yeah. situation was...
1: It was there it, at the yeah. beginning, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I just think, like, I just think we have to find ways of talking about the market and talking about, like, states, you know. And I feel like, and I'm getting all anxious about the election again, and I'm getting anxious about all the... People are mad at burning again. It's like, it's like, is this nothing that... S- Sanders is not going to screw transgender people. He just doesn't talk about that kind of stuff. He's not good at it. But it's like the kind of changes he would make were he elected, you know, with some luck with the other houses, um, would have, have a bigger difference on on, um, on transgender people than Joe Biden, who never stops talking about transgender people. You know, like, so I just think, like... But people are so quick to take offense or if they don't say transgender, they think, like, oh, he hates trans people. You know, it just, I feel like we have to do much more work to kind of create that trust, I guess.
0: You haven't mentioned being a, uh, talking about being a parent Oh, much. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, tell us about that.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I, um, yeah, I, um, I, it's kind of funny talking about same-sex marriage because I got married in 2000 and, uh, 2008 Um, uh, to an academic and we have a child. Um, We have a child and then, um, yeah, we're divorced. But it's kind of funny because same-sex, well, whatever kind of marriage you want to call it, I mean, I don't know if it's a same-sex marriage or an opposite-sex marriage because New York didn't recognize same-sex marriages, so it would have recognized opposite-sex marriages, whatever. It was a marriage. But, you know, I mean, that marriage kind of was good for me. Like, it secured my... And I could have adopted the kid, but it it did a nice job of kind of securing my parental rights. It secured my position, you know, in a divorce. Like, you know, it's, um, so when people criticize marriage, I'm like, you know, actually, it does kind of, it is about, It is about like, money and property. It's it's about making those divisions equal. So, like, it's not exactly the most evil thing in the world. Um, But, yeah, so now, like, I'm a single, um, I'm a single dad half the time. Uh, Yeah, I live in a house, a duplex, and my ex lives in a duplex above me. So the kid just goes back and forth.
0: Yeah. That sounds convenient. Yeah, yeah. As ex situations go.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. 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 I mean, my ex did run off with a guy, a trans guy, 20 years younger than me, so that was a little bit of a, ouch! (laughs) You know, it was like, oh, am I old? Maybe, yes, I am old, but (laughs) oh well. And what do
0: you do for fun?
1: Um... I don't know, I like, you know, I I uh, I putter around, fix up the house, like I'm not a handyman, but I'm like, okay, this is a project, I'm gonna accomplish it this Saturday. And with, you know, four trips to Lowe's and a couple of broken things, like, I'll accomplish it. I like to run, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run, the, I'll probably run that Gay Pride race on Saturday. And I ran this Brooklyn Pride race a month ago, and it was it was very sweet, but Brooklyn is still Brooklyn, it was sort of backwater. They have these weird categories, like you get male, female, or transgender. <laughs> So, I mean, they just kind of had a company in Long Island that did it for them, and they probably didn't know what to do. So on a lark, I, I, I just chose transgender, which I would never do in that case, because I feel like it's sort of like, oh, so I'm not a man. But I, I chose transgender, and then I won in my age category. It's the first time in 20 years of running, because I, uh, <laughs> I, I was the fastest transgender man aged between 50 and 59, So um, I won like a $15 iTunes gift card or something. But uh, I'm glad that was the only time I've ever won something from being transgender. So I'm (laughs) like, click that box. So yeah, so you know, I'm gonna go camping with my daughter in a couple of days, you know. I like to go nature camping, but she likes, you know, she likes to go car camping. So we go to like, you know, park in the Catskills. And there's a big tent city, and it's just like Brooklyn to her. So it's like, oh, this is fun. It's just like, it's And I am kind of an introvert, and it's like, oh, God, she's going to go talk to all these people. But, that, you know, so, she's, so that kind of camping for her is like another social experience, like a little tent city. But anyways.
0: Uh, why did you decide to do this interview?
1: Um, I don't know. I think somebody a couple of years ago had asked me, and I meant to say yes. Um, I don't know. I guess I thought I should, you know, before I totally lose my memory, to talk about um, what I know, what I think I know, and also I have a bit more of a sense like the limitations of what I was doing earlier, and it was felt you know it probably was necessary, but it's kind of interesting to kind of reflect on that. Yeah.
0: Was there stuff that you wanted to share about from your life that you didn't get to? Um. I don't think I don't think so. You're a good interviewer. I mean, I'm a kind
1: of private person. That I don't go into tons of detail about you know private self but it's fine. yeah yeah no it's been good yeah
0: uh do you have any hopes for where trans studies or the trans movement or might be going
1: well for the trans movement i think it's going this way <clears throat> with the youth is <clears throat> to recognize that like like racism and poverty and like immigration like i think it's just becoming much more like just a commonly agreed upon belief like fixing those problems is going to do the most to alleviate trans people um, and I you know I mean I think it's, it's not always good to talk in generational terms and there are lots of radical older trans activists too but I just noticed like you know through Facebook and so on there's all these like totally communist trans men and women around there. it's like, I'm so psyched to see that. Like, I had no idea until I started kind of poking in there on, on Facebook and so on. I just think like, that's just like a really exciting development, you know? So, so I feel like very hopeful about that. You know, in trans studies, it's, it's more tricky because it's just higher education in general is just so, uh, there's labor is so precarious there. And like, I think trans studies is sort of doing well, but if like, there's not gonna be jobs for anybody uh, it's you know that's gonna that's gonna harm innovation, and and you know people getting their work out there. So yeah. maybe there'll be free college, and the, you know we'll get more money to higher education. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Paisley. Well oh, thank you, Michelle. I yeah. appreciated this.